This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Joe Henrik. Joe is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University and is the author of the book, The Weirdest People in the World. During our conversation, Joe talks about his interest in human nature, how cultures change people biologically, how the mating laws of the Roman Catholic Church and the literacy imperatives of Protestantism change Western civilization, cultural limitations on the big five personality traits, monogamy and polygyny, modern dating, objective truth, right and wrong, and what UN parking ticket data tells us about different countries in the world. WEIRD stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And if you're listening to this episode, you likely fall in that category. Joe is an encyclopedia of information about human beings, who we are, how we're different, and how we got this way. He offers advice for struggling young men, political leaders contemplating foreign intervention, and how to think clearly about ethics and moral relativism. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe. Henrik. Joe, I have so been looking forward to this. I know we emailed, I think, more than half a year ago about setting this up. Um, you are a very busy man. I really appreciate you doing this. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to meet you, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the chat. That's great, Dan. It's good to be with you. Likewise. Um, I have been devouring your, uh, your book and your interviews that you've done in the last few days in preparation for this conversation. And I want to get into the details of of all of that as much as we have time for. I thought I might start by just asking you, you know, personally, how did you get interested in the vast number of subjects that you cover in your book? I mean, to me, as I read your work, it's you know, the ultimate question of who we are and what human nature is and where we come from. Where did that curiosity come from for you in your life? How did you get interested in what you study? Well, uh, I guess it goes all the way back to, so when I went to undergrad, so I went to the University of Notre Dame and I went in uh, to study aerospace engineering, uh, which I did do. But after my first year, I uh, got really interested in anthropology. And so I took a, took an anthro class just to fulfill a requirement um, and ended up adding anthropology as another degree program and then going for five years to get two degrees. So I have a BA and a BS with a, a BA in anthropology. And um wasn't sure I was ready to make the leap and get a PhD in anthro. So I did, I worked for, as an engineer for two years, uh, at an undisclosed location in Northern Virginia. <laughs> and, uh, but then I quit and, and, and drove across the country, enrolled in graduate school at UCLA and got into anthropology. And as part of that, I started doing field work in the Peruvian Amazon, 
uh, and just really being interested in how people made decisions and trying to understand how they thought about the world and why they were coming up with some decisions, uh, some decisions, but not others. I was thinking about like crops and use of fertilizer and things like that, but I also got interested in in cooperation and I started conducting some experiments in the second year using some tools that were just beginning to be developed in economics. These behavioral economic games where you give people sums of real money and have them make decisions about how to allocate the money between themselves and another person. And the results I got immediately there suggested big differences from the kinds of uh, results that economists had gotten uh, in places like the US and Zurich, and um, also results that didn't fit my own intuitions. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe some of the, those effects would be human universal, and I saw some variation. So that just led me into a, no- a number of other disciplines as I tried to figure out that problem. Mm. What, and, and to me, that's one of the, such a fascinating component to your work is the effect of culture on human beings. And what kind of you know, light bulbs were going off or unexpected results that you began to, you know, notice in um, some of these, you know, studies that you were finding about, you know, non-Western people and how they were behaving. What do you remember, if anything, about, you know, some of the curious findings that you were coming across? Well, I mean, the, the, the first one and the one that, you know, eventually gets built into a couple of really large scale comparative projects are these ones around these behavioral economic games. So initially doing the ultimatum game, uh, this is a game, a, 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 an experiment in which two people, strangers usually, are allotted a sum of money. We put a large sum of money on, on the line, so $160. Mm-hmm. And it's the job of the first person to make an offer to the second person between zero and the full amount. So say zero to $160. And then the second person can either accept or reject the offer. And if they accept it, they get the amount of the offer and the first player gets the remainder. If they reject it, both players get zero. Hmm. So the sort of self-interested economic predictions, the canonical predictions from economics say that the first player should offer the smallest positive amount possible. So if there's say $10 increments, you should give the person $10 out of the $160 and keep 150 for yourself. But what experiments had shown in lots of places was that uh, people would go for half, like they would offer half and and offers that got too much below a half would be rejected. Hmm. But then, when, so that fit my intuition. But then when I went to the Peruvian Amazon, uh, I found that people were much closer to the, to the rational prediction of the economists. So making quite small offers and people happily accepting them. And I interviewed people about what they were thinking and how they understood the game and all kinds of things like that. So I was kind of combining what anthropologists traditionally do with these experimental economic games. So seeing that striking difference and actually talking to people and walking through their thinking really began me down this road and and considering that culture might affect our basic motivations. In this case, it would be our motivations for fairness in in interactions with anonymous others. Uh, And then we we did this experiment in lots of different places. We replicated it. We did all the kinds of good stuff you would do uh, scientifically and still kept getting the same findings. And then as I was working on this and thinking about cultural learning and how people learn from others and what kinds of things they learn, I got a postdoc at the University of Michigan, where I met uh, Richard Nisbet. And Nisbet had been thinking about cultural differences between people and and how they think about the world. 
And so I then was working in Chile and I took some experiments that Nesbitt was using and did them in Chile. And what I began to realize is that not only are people learning values and even motivations, which is where my mind had been, but they're actually learning how to process information differently. They're getting different strategies for what to attend to in the world, what to pay attention to, how to val- how to you know evaluate different things. So really the transmission of psychological differences is what it was what I began to see. Yeah. And I think that to me, one of the more interesting findings just as a you know amateur reading your your work is the clear effect of, as I understand it, culture, this is eventually another finding that you have you have stated of culture on biology. And one of those examples that I know you brought up, which I'm sure we will get into, is related to, you know, the culture being able to change people biologically, but but not genetically. And two reference points I know that you have spoken about are related to, you know, testosterone in mating, and then how uh, be, being literate can change people biologically. I, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with that, but I thought it might be helpful to just set the table for people that are completely unfamiliar with your work to learn about, you know, the the concept that you brought up, which I know I have heard you say is really a consciousness raising uh, concept, which is weird individuals and as i understand it kind of others what's the difference between the two in your in your estimation so uh let me give you a little bit of background so you understand where it's coming from so uh, as i began to get into this psychological variation i i got a professor job at the university of british columbia where i met two social psychologists steve heine and arnor and zion and over some lunches over a period of several months the three of us began to realize that in each of our areas, not only did we find cultural differences, but that the populations most typically studied by psychologists were unusual. They were at the end of the distribution or outliers in some cases. Uh, And so we dubbed those populations weird, uh, stand for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And we coined this term as a reminder to psychologists and economists and other behavioral science researchers that the population they most typically get data from, from which they often generalize to human nature, is actually psychologically unusual when looked at in a global perspective. So we wrote this paper in 2010 called The Weirdest People in the World, which basically questioned uh, the methods used in psychology and economics because they were too focused on usually American undergraduates at that time. So 70% of the studies done in psychology were done amongst American undergraduates prior to 2010. And, you know, even the remaining 30% was done in Europe or Australia or Canada or places like that. So only about 4% of studies were done outside the Western world. And when you when you go globally and you look at the rest of the 88% of the global population that's non-Western, you find tremendous variation. So you, in dimensions like individualism or trust in strangers or inclinations towards analytic thinking versus holistic thinking or the importance of intentionality and moral judgment. And I can go on, personality dimensions vary and uh, patience varies. Um, So just a lot of psychological variation. And what I was doing in my more recent book, The Weirdest People in the World, was trying to lay out some ideas about where this global variation might come from and why populations in Europe and European descent societies might be unusual when seen in a global perspective. Yeah. And I want to get into that. And a question that I had for you as I was reading your book was whether, you know, in your mind, you kind of lump the the weird individuals and you just you know spelled out that acronym 
and everyone else? Or do you think there, you know, within the non-weird individuals, there are many subcategories of, of those cultures? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's why I really emphasize that the weird acronym, in some sense, it shouldn't be taken too seriously. <laughs> uh, it's it's meant as a consciousness raising device to say that, look, there's this important psychological variation you have to attend to. Um, key key things are one, and I say this, you know, this is an itemized thing in the first chapter of the book, which is don't set up a weird versus non-weird dichotomy in your mind. Yeah. The kinds of aspects of psychology that I talk about in the book and that I just mentioned are very continuously. So there's not sudden disjunct between some populations and others. You can find all variants in between. <clears throat> and they they, you know, they vary along lots of different dimensions. So not everything always clumps together. Yes, statistically across countries, we tend to see correlations among these. But we can also decompose them. So one of the things I do in the book is I look at China and show how different provinces of China have interesting psychological variation, all among Han Chinese. And I try to apply the theory to show if we can explain some of that. You can do the same thing in India. I actually spend a lot of time in the book trying to explain variation in people's psychology, say individualism or conformity, by just looking, comparing regions within European countries. So I look at Italy, for example, or you know, you can look at all of Europe and try to explain Eastern and Western Europe, or why Germany, why different parts of Germany are different. And you can actually make a bit of progress by using some of the ideas that I develop in Weird. So uh, you don't want to see it as, as these two monoliths uh, yeah. in, in any way. And the the Han Chinese example is a fascinating one. If I remember correctly, it's related to you know rice farmers and industrial areas. R remind me exactly what what was found about the differences in the Chinese experiments. Yeah. So that well, the, one of the key ideas I develop in the book is that the structure of the family, so how tightly interwoven your kinship networks are organizes a lot of people's thinking in terms of, say, analytic versus holistic thinking or individualism and who you're going to trust. And then the question is, well, what affects the structure of families? Well, in Europe, I make a case that the Catholic Church had a big impact on it over over centuries. But in China, that's not going on. In China, I think one of the things that differentiates the provinces and the counties within provinces is the agricultural situation, whether you can do paddy rice agriculture, because paddy rice agriculture has very particular and intensive demands and favors the strengthening of clans. Whereas in other parts of China that do wheat and corn and other kinds of things, you find much weaker kinship systems because mm -hmm. the agricultural system didn't traditionally demand it. And so you can explain some of that psychological variation by knowing facts about the agricultural potential of different regions of China. Yeah. And how would you apply that to Germany? I know you mentioned that that was also a, an area in which you might be able to have a similar outlook. Uh, what do we know about the German situation? Well, um, the thing I focused on in the book in Germany is the spread of the Catholic Church. And so there are parts of Germany that were exposed to the Catholic Church much later in history than other parts. So it's actually the parts where, you know, where Nazism was strongest, the parts that had the highest share of the vote for Hitler, had the least amount of exposure to the Roman Catholic Church and had the, you know, maintained strong family structures for longer into history. Mm. Uh, and so you can, you can see that variation just within Europe. Um, and one of the, one of the ask, one of the things in Europe that I talk about in the book and we've, some of our subsequent research has focused on it is, um, what's called the Carolingian Empire. So you may remember from history class, there was this empire around 800 CE in Europe. And when we look and that that empire, Charlemagne, Pepin the Short, 
uh, kind of teamed up with the Catholic Church, developed the parish system, and imposed a lot of the church's prohibitions on cousin marriage and other things dealing with marriage in the family that really broke Europeans down into monogamous nuclear families. And we can see variation in Europe by looking on both sides of that historical border. So even though the Carolingian Empire went away a long time ago, you can still see the remnants that it left behind in terms of how it affected the kinship structure and the subsequent developments that followed after that. Yeah. You know, one one subculture I know from the US that I continuously thought was thinking about when I was, you know, getting more familiar with your work were the Scots-Irish and the, you know, uh, from the little I know about that, you know, subculture that they are very connected to kin and loyalty and it's much more of an honor culture. What do you know, if anything, about about that? Um, that group yeah, of so, so, so that's a great case. So Sc- Scotch-Irish come in, they have uh, relatively strong kinship networks and they have a strong culture of honor because traditionally they had something called a segmentary lineage system, which really cultivates these, um, these cultures of honor. So almost anywhere you look in the world where you see a, a strong culture of honor, if you look back into the history of that population, you'll find a segmentary lineage. So the Pashtuns who dominate the Taliban have a segmentary lineage system, strong notions of honor. So this thing clearly affects our, our the modern world. And so with this, when the Scotch-Irish come over, if Scotch-Irish settled in, say, northern cities or towns, then any, any detectable remnants of this Scotch-Irishness disappears. But when they settled in the south and the more remote areas of the you know, spreading United States, uh, you can the the Scotch Irish culture was able to survive and persist, especially in rural areas. And so, uh, both Dick Nesbitt, Dick, uh, Dove Cohen, and others think that this culture of honor that we still find in parts of the U.S. is heritage of the Scotch Irish settlement pattern, especially in these rural parts of the South. And in fact, an economist named Pauline Grosjean, who is you know works in Australia now, um, I think she's French originally. Uh, she has done an analysis where she looks at the murder rate in the year 2000, and then she tries to predict it using the 1790 census from which she can extract the percentage of Scotch-Irish in all of the original U.S. counties that were present in the 1790 census. And what she finds is that you can still explain some of the murder rate in uh, in parts of the South or in the South in general uh, today by knowing the free, the percentage of Scotch-Irish that settled in, in 1790. Mm. So especially in the rural areas, you get the persistence of this Scotch-Irish culture where, you know, if somebody insults your wife in a bar, a fight will ensue. And, you know, anytime there's a fight, there's a chance someone might get killed. Right? Am I right that there is a disproportionate percentage of the of the Scotch Irish population that becomes part of the military as well? That that you know the the warring culture really is real and that's reflected in military participation, or is that is that unknown? Yeah, I mean, point? I haven't done into I haven't dug into the uh, data myself on that one, but scholars have definitely made the argument that Scotch Irish, when they get uh, positions of power, including some presidents, um, were more inclined to go to war than you know they're they're non-Scotch Irish, uh, other presidents and other, other political leaders. Yeah. You mentioned the Catholic church earlier and so much of your book, it seems like is rooted in the history of the church and, you know, the, the rules and, and the, the mandates that were you know imposed by the Catholic church. I think I have heard you say this, that, you know, this, the story of its effect on Europe and really the eventual prosperity and development of Europe can be traced to about a thousand years ago, right around a thousand A.D., where there were prohibitions on, I think it is, um, 
you know, mostly marrying your cousin. What is the story there about what we know about the Catholic Church and its effect long term on you know Europe and Western Europe specifically? Yeah. So what seems to so this is uh, I think the best place to start the story is in late antiquity. So the Roman Empire still exists, and the Catholic Church is becoming stronger. Eventually, Rome becomes Catholic or, or becomes Christian in what eventually becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And the church is pushing for um, bilateral inheritance, so seeing uh, children as the product of both mom and dad rather than really emphasizing dad, so that weakens patriarchy. Uh, the begin bans on cousin marriage begin to appear. It starts with first cousins, but then by sometime after a thousand CE, it goes all the way out to sixth cousins. Um, and then, you know, in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, it's contracted, but there you still have bans on third cousins. So that's that's quite that's a large, a large circle of relatives that are banning. It includes also affines. So, for example, if your wife dies, you can't marry her sister anymore. Whereas in many societies, you would be encouraged to marry the sister. Um, that would be an obvious alternative marriage partner if your wife were to die. Uh, the church also ends polygamy. So, lots of groups um, have polygynous marriage. You know, the European tribal groups, the Celts and the Franks, and all those guys had polygyny. But the church puts an end to that. That constrains kinship, and basically, the 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 church's policies carve things down to monogamous nuclear families, and where mo people are mostly marrying non-relatives, people they don't know. So it's forcing people to reach out and creating the new marriage bonds. So the argument is that this, you know, starts gets going. You know, the there's letters, for example, between the Pope and the missionaries he sent to Kent uh, in England, where they're discussing this stuff and how to implement it and how strong to be about it. And so, you know, it's being implemented in England in 600. Um, you begin to see some statistical evidence of it in 800, 900. But then by 1200, you're really seeing its impact. At least there's historical work in England uh, on these, you know, shrinking family sizes, more individualism, individual ownership of property, um, cousins being not very important in political and legal situations. So. Yeah. And, you know, long term, and I know there is a huge component of, your work and the the story that you present about the development of Europe is related to you know Protestantism as well. What's the interplay between you know the you just mentioned a little bit about the Catholic Church history you know, in my reading of of your assessment of Protestantism, it's really both the work and the word ethic, the the um the mandate, the encouragement of reading both for men and for women. Well, how do you make sense of that story, and how important was that in the development of Western Europe? Well, so one of the one of the things I emphasize in the book when I finally get to Protestantism, because that's more towards the end of the book, although I, I have a kind of an opening vignette about it, um, is that Protestantism is such an unusual religion with its emphasis on the individual and on faith alone as a way of getting to heaven and of pleasing God and whatnot, that in some sense we need to prepare the ground, we need to explain where Protestantism would would come from before we can consider the impacts of Protestantism on people's psychology and on economics. So I make the case that it's the, the Catholic Church's demolition of the family, breaking it down to individuals, encouraging individualism, creating these impersonal markets, which play a big role in the book, that paves the way for uh, such an individualistic faith where people are, where mental states are really at the center of the, unlike, you know, so many other world religions where it's the activity, the ritual that's so important. So 
Uh, but then I, I, I do make the case, and I agree with Weber, essentially, that Protestantism does have a big impact. It does seem to encourage at least some variants of it, encourage a work ethic, uh, deferral of gratification, greater individualism, uh, and these things can have impacts on on economics. I mean, if people just spend more of their time in productive labor, um, you know, you're going to have you're going to have greater GDP. Yeah, I and I I think this is correct as well that you know the while the Catholic Church made these adjustments, they didn't really know what they were doing. You they just know that they got rich fast. Right. What, I think what, that's the, that's the best way to think about it. Is they clearly didn't have a plan. They didn't weren't thinking long term. But I mean, if you make these adjustments, you actually get more bequests. So when people die, if they have if they can individually give to the church and they want to get to heaven, um, that's a good way to do it. Is when you die, you give the church a portion of your land. And in some places, secular rulers actually had to limit the amount of land that people could give to the church because people were like, you know, leaving their descendants with nothing because they wanted to make sure they got into heaven, essentially giving all of their land to the church. And so secular authorities would limit that. And it also would increase the power of the church, which was a competitor for secular authorities. But the church ends up being the largest landowner in Europe by you know the, the end of the high middle ages um, because of all the bequests that's generated. And if you have a normal, normal in this uh, complex kinship system, like we saw in most societies until the church did this, you know, you don't really own the land in any traditional sense because there are automatic inheritance customs that say who gets the land and people often jointly own the land. So corporate ownership. So the church has to do a lot of work on the kinship system so they can one, get rid of all these collateral um, uh, people who would try to claim the land and then also kind of tie it to the to the lineal descent and give you individual ownership of it. Hmm. It might be helpful for people who are listening to this to learn a little bit about what the world looked like before, you know, you mentioned that you know, there, there was a um, abolition on marrying your first cousin, which eventually developed into your sixth cousin. It, the, the, it, it seems to me in reading your, your work and your research that the default is a kin-based society, that that's really the way that human beings absent, um, you know, the, the interjection from the Catholic Church tended to live. Is that correct? And if so, what did that world look like? Yeah, I mean, that's what all of, you know, contemporary anthropology points to, is that uh, before the modern era, or before the church began tinkering in medieval times, um, most people lived, or all people lived in intensive, complex kinship systems. So you're born into a world where you have lots of uh, rich kinship ties. You have lots of roles and responsibilities, people who you have to do things for and who are also responsible for you. Um, most of your friends and business partners and stuff will be people who are who are who already exist somewhere in this kinship network. So you don't have like, you're not going to go out and make a lot of new friends. You're probably going to have an arranged marriage because um, everything is operating through kinship ties. The family is the unit of production. It's the unit of distribution. In terms of legal representative, individuals didn't even exist, right? Families would, would you know, decide what would, how to adjudicate different things. Uh, even in Rome, for example, unless you were the patriarch, uh, you know, everybody was under him. So legally, he, you know, if you did something, he would have to deal with it, and and you would he would be legally responsible and have to do the, any kind of punishment and whatnot. Um, 
so there, there are just these big differences in how people in in the centrality of the family. And it's really in Europe where we see this all broken down into these monogamous nuclear families, which allow secular institutions to function in a totally different way. Because uh, if everybody is thinking in terms of their family groups and their clans and their kindreds and stuff, you tend to operate as a unit and you don't operate as an individual. So something like nepotism for most of human history has been a good thing. You should be nepotistic and help and hire your relatives and all those kinds of things. It was only in you know more recent history that it became a, it became a bad thing. Yeah. And I alluded to this earlier that it, it appears that the cultural effect on human beings can change them while not genetically, biologically. What do we know about how people are beginning to change biologically based upon how their culture is influencing them? And I, I think to me, this is one of the most fascinating components of your work is the psychological effect of culture on people. And it's almost like you are creating and incentivizing different kinds of humans based upon the culture in which these people find themselves. You can take that question however you want, but I mean, in the sweeping arc of history that has led to today, We've talked about the influence of the Catholic Church and the and Protestantism in general. What's important there? What do we know about how these cultures really changed people from a biological perspective? Yeah. So I think the, so. The important thing here. Let me go back to I was talking about the development of these ideas in the 1990s, and then uh, when I first began to think about writing the weirdest people in the world, uh, I started I got a proposal and uh, got a contract and stuff. And the first half of the book uh, turned into its own book. So mm. in 2016, I published a book called The Secret of Our Success. Yeah, Because I, I found that I had to kind of lay out the framework from which to think about cultural evolution. So, you know, I'm in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. So I'm thinking about humans as animals, the products of natural selection. And the case I make in the secret of our success is that we're a cultural species. That part of our, one of our genetically or a set of our genetically evolved adaptations is our capacity to learn from other people. And that we are coming to the world fired up and ready to start imitating and acquiring ideas, beliefs, values, ways of thinking, motivations, valences, emotions from other people. And that, you know, we were really wiring these things into our brain as we're growing up. And the secret of our success, I make the case that actually we have an extended juvenile period. So this is the period when kids are growing up, when their brain is plastic, and you can really wire things into the brain during that period. It's the period when you can learn to speak another language without an accent, right? You can be truly multilingual. Um, that's just one example. There's lots of other features of culture that operate like that too. So we have these plastic brains, this long period of plasticity, this inclination to look out into the world and to drink all this in. And as soon as you really understand this approach, it wasn't it was developed by many of us all around the same time I consolidated into this book in, in 2016, it dissolves the biology culture distinction that I think really per pervades the social sciences and still the university and really hurts our ability to think about this. So when I say culture changes us biologically, in the cases that we're talking about, I'm talking about how it shapes and molds our brains. Because we're a cultural species, when we when we learn or train or think about something repeatedly, that modifies our brains. It doesn't change us genetically in this case, mm. but it it changes us uh, physiologically, neuroanatomically. So you, you asked me about Protestantism, and one of the key things in Protestantism is this idea that everyone has to learn to read the Bible for themselves. So Protestants began teaching their kids from a young age to read because of this religious need to read the Bible for themselves. Now, it turns out being able to read is 
pretty general purpose and you can read lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when we learn to read, we actually get a, a specialized circuitry in our left hemisphere and we get a thicker corpus callosum. That's the information highway that connects the left and right hemispheres. And that affects lots of things about thinking besides just reading. So for example, when we speak or we hear speech, we also sometimes see bits of it visually. And it and we have flow between our hemispheres that people who haven't learned to read don't have. This could have costs and benefits. So one argument I point out is some neuroscientists have suggested that the circuitry in our in our brains for reading actually crowds out some of our facial recognition. So really intense readers may be a bit worse at recognizing faces. They, maybe they can't store as many faces or be as precise. So anyway, so there's you know costs and benefits to using neurogeography in different ways. But one way that is now spread almost entirely across the world is learning to read as a child. <clears throat> and so this shapes our brains. And so there's lots of other activities which we routine, routinely do, which is going to shape our brains in other ways. So what we want to do is get away from a kind of culture biology dichotomy in that we are biological organisms whose one of our main adaptations is to wire culture into our heads because it allows us to efficiently navigate the world. So the easy one is language, right? We have to wire language into our heads. We have to get good at it. We develop cultural routines that wire reading into our heads. So we do it spontaneously and unconsciously. If I show you a word, it's hard for you not to read it, assuming it's written in a language you can read. If I show you a language you can't read, you don't have any trouble not reading it, right? Mm -hmm. But so that's our mind just responds very differently to these kinds of characters. Um, so anyway, so, so that's just the point about culture and biology. Now I do make an argument in the secret of our success that over hundreds of thousands of years, genes and culture have co-evolved and there's lots of features of human nature that we can only understand as products of genes and culture over long periods of time. But that's one piece. But then there's this other piece I described that's not about genes and it's about changing our biology without changing our genes. So you got to keep both in your head at the same time. Yeah, and one one component to that to me seems to be, and and we touched on this uh, briefly a little bit earlier, is is sex and mating. And I know, you know, I, I think I've heard you say this in a prior interview that something like eighty five percent of societies in the world allow elite and high status men to have multiple wives. Um, you know, you I think transit transitioned that into um, a biological effect on men who are in those societies who become fathers and get married versus those who are in monogamous cultures where as i understand it predictably if you live in a monogamous culture like i assume the united states and you get married and then you have children in both of those moments predictably your testosterone goes down where that does not happen in other cultures am i understanding that roughly correctly yeah, yeah. So that that's the idea. So the, the first thing you said I think is important and it gets back to something we talked about previously. So the anthropological data, you know, you don't want to take the number too seriously, but something like 85% of human societies that anthropologists have have documented allow high status elite men to take additional wives. This includes, you know, small scale hunter gatherers. If there's enough difference between men such that some men are really good hunters and some aren't so good, then you'll get some men having two, three, four wives and some men having none. Uh, and then, of course, as soon as you scale up and you create large inequality of stratified societies, you get some men having hundreds of wives 
and some men having none. And of course, the number of men who have none is going to go up as you get this more extreme accumulation of women as wives in highly polygynous societies. So this has, I mean, uh, it, it makes these societies less competitive in competition with other societies, because there's all these men who never become fathers, and uh, they don't have a stake in the future. Um, you know, this when you get married, as you said, and have children, your testosterone goes down, you're kind of moving into a fatherhood uh, mode of psychology where you want to raise offspring for the long term. Um, you got to stay around to help those offspring, you know, get past their first 20 years at least and, and things like that. Whereas if you're if you're in a situation where it's really hard for you to get into the mating and marriage market, you're an evolutionary zero. You're going to take risks uh, and do crazy stuff sometimes forget it, to get the chance to get into that higher status where you could possibly get into the mating and marriage market. Yeah. So monogamy as we think of it in the modern world really begins to spread with the uh with the roman catholic church so people don't realize that you know even in some pl places like japan china turkey these places all had polygyny um turkey still has polygyny in in lots of rural areas and it was only with the connection to the west when china and japan for example uh and and turkey in 1926 China in 1950, Japan in the 1880s, they began adopting Western civil codes. And along with those civil codes, they got required, you know, only one wife at a time, essentially. And what that does is it redistributes. I mean, sorry for the economic terminology, but it oh, effectively please. redistributes women to the poor men who would otherwise not have a chance. Because uh, the idea is, and I think there's evidence for this, some enough women would rather be the second husband of a billionaire than the first husband of a poor guy. Um, and anyway, so it so that has a big effect on society psychologically because, first of all, just being monogamous um, alters your testosterone. So the in in males, there's a generally a pattern of decline in testosterone as you get older. And physicians and whatnot interpreted this as being a fact about getting older. It turns out it's a fact about being monogamous because uh, when they've done this testosterone on men in polygynous societies, the testosterone stays high. It doesn't su suffer that decline. If you're looking for wife number four in your 50s, you don't have a decline in your testosterone. Um, so, so that's what, so that's just the high status men. Now, the low status men are in a similar situation where if you're enlisting fewer men as fathers, then fewer men are going into that father psychology where you're getting more, uh, less testosterone, probably uh, more of other hormones that make you more fatherly. And so, yeah, so there's this big change. That is absolutely fascinating. And there's a quote that I, I wrote out, if, if, if you'll allow me, I just want to read from your book, which articulates exactly this point. Um, and this is from your your weird book. Monogamous marriage changes men psychologically, even hormonally, and has downstream effects on societies. Although this form of marriage is neither natural nor normal for human societies and runs directly counter to the strong inclinations of high status or elite men, it nevertheless can give religious groups in societies an advantage in intergroup competition. By suppressing male-male competition and altering family structure, monogamous marriage shifts men's psychology in ways that tend to reduce crime, violence, and zero-sum thinking while promoting broader trust, long-term investments, and steady economic accumulation. Anything else you want to add to that? It's a fascinating insight that that this the competitive advantage from a group selection seems to really matter here in terms of the you know, the story of the human species and the story of the West. Yeah. 
Well, uh, the thing I've been thinking about along these lines, which actually has me kind of worried uh, about <laughs> our contemporary society, is so you look at uh, what's going on with males, young males, and the kind of failure of young men uh, in terms of you know getting into college. So compared to women now, fewer men getting into college, as we know, consistent with everything we know about female mating psychology. Uh, successful women with college degrees aren't interested in marrying men without college degrees. They want men who are at least as high status as they are or higher. So as women are, you know, thankfully rising up the status hierarchy and getting more employment opportunities, that's creating this pool of low status, unmarriageable men. Uh, to make that even worse, contemporary dating apps, the data is showing that a small fraction of men get almost all the attention from women. So you got a whole bunch of guys that go on dating apps and never get a single date. Uh, and you're basically getting exactly what I said, what happened in a polygynous society where all of the men are going for a small number of, of males. Um, so I see things, the things that plague polygynous societies seem to be finding a way to reemerge in, in modern society. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because a couple of months ago, I interviewed a man named John Berger who wrote a book. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's called Date Onomics, and it's basically applying supply and demand to dating micro dating markets in the US. And he opens the book by doing an analysis of New York City and makes the observation that there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands more college-educated single women in this town than there are men. And the general point of the book, and this can work in the inverse, I think, according to John, like in a place like Silicon Valley or San Jose, California, where the, the numbers are inverted, that really people are responding to their local ecology, the local culture, in terms of what the, the you know, prevailing mating and dating practices are, where in places like New York, and you know, it has this reputation, even if you watch a, uh, you know, a show like Sex in the City, where hookup culture and short-term dating and you know women who are um you know, vying for the attention of some high status men is kind of the norm where you go to different parts of the US and that's not necessarily the case. It's actually something I wanted to bring up with you because I know I've heard you speak about this in prior conversations and maybe it would be helpful to learn about what are the you said to make it even worse with the dating apps and it seems like kind of maybe like an 80/20 rule or even more than that with these technologies where where women are getting you know access to men who are extremely desirable and kind of tick off every box that they might want uh what are the negative potential consequences of you just mentioned this of poly polygynous societies what can happen what can go wrong uh no, the, the, know, the, these the, tendencies continue the, yeah the big worry is uh and there's lots of worries but the big worry is um large numbers of low status uh, disaffected young males. Uh, so the, the, you know, we have a label for so at least some subgroup of these called the incels. Yeah. And so, you know, these guys are out of the, you know, they're struggling in the marriage and mating market. Some of them have just opted out of it, uh, you know, with the availability of online porn and whatnot. Um, and so they're, they're disengaged, right? There's no, there's no, they're not trying to impress anyone. Uh, and no. so, you know, you want to get men to work, uh, you you know the men will men will seek status in part because of their reproductive possibilities, and so the, you know you don't have that inspiration. Plus, they got to take if they do want to get in the marriage and mating market, they got to take big risks, uh, and this can lead to all the kinds of things you see in the incel community: the hatred of women, 
um, violent tendencies, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to me, it seems like, you know, this is happening. It's not exactly the same, but we were mentioning this earlier about the Catholic church, how they, they just sort of stumbled into this kind of prosperity, not knowing what they were doing. I feel like this information about how dating apps are affecting our culture are also not very well known at this point. Um, and at some point I would imagine this will become, you know, much more widespread, you know, knowledge, I guess, from your perspective, if we want to maintain, uh, you know, a prosperous and stable society in general at like a thousand, the thirty thousand foot view, what can be done here? I mean, is this really like a cultural, um, mimicking encouragement that you know you want to model the, the uh, respected elder men who are all monogamously married? How does a culture get that back where that becomes you know you know a virtue or? something to be to be modeled by by young men in the society well i mean i would think that one place to start would be anything that would uh help young males to be more uh to do better in school um because the way that our society has evolved uh it's it's made school a place where it's harder for boys to do well relative to girls Mm. and so you know, we want boys to be prosperous too. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, you know, people will still complain and and rightfully so, and that's fine about, you know, the males are, you know, more CEOs are males. But if, once you just, you just go down two generations and you look at the high school students and females are completely dominating. So we need to start thinking about, you know, 40 years down the line and start helping our young males so that they can prosper and do well in school. And I mean, colleges have trouble admitting enough men now. Elite colleges struggle to to fill their their male cat, you know, their male quotas. Yeah. And you know, and also for women in general, this is a point I made to to John and I think some other guests who have been on the show that the great irony is, like you said, I mean, it's incredible the amount of opportunities that women now have and have taken. And it, it's I think it's a great testament to our society that that has happened in such a short period of time but you know when they're turning 30 35 years old and looking for a mate so many of them are now you know they're they have outcompeted nearly all of the men in society um so by the time they're looking to actually potentially start a family there aren't there there essentially are very 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 few men right. who can who, who can cut it with them that's right yeah yeah so it's a real paradox so the at least for you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to slow the women down, but I, I want to uh, speed the men up, I guess. Yeah. What do you think you, you just were mentioning this, that you know, for we're not, you know, the, the system is not particularly designed well for men to succeed in. I don't know if you've thought about this or have any, you know, initial ideas of how that might change or, or what, you know, how the, the system might be tweaked slightly for men to, you know, have a better likelihood for success. If you thought about that at all, what do you, what do you, how do you think about that? Well, um, you know, there are people, so there's a great book uh, called of boys and men, I think by Richard Reeve, which I recommend on this topic. Uh, I would start experimenting essentially. I mean, not, not experimenting in a negative sense, but trying to figure out there's possibility that single sex classes might be good for both boys and girls, um, more recess boys need more recess. Uh, recess has been declining, right? It's, you know, there's a lot, like my son has a lot less recess than I, than I had at his age. Boys need to get out. They need to run around. They need rough and tumble play. They like competition. Um, it's okay to have winners and losers, you know, those kinds of things. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I know they like medals. They like medals. They like to wear uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know I, one, one of the big takeaways for me just in general in reading your work was how, you know, maybe it should be affecting the way that I am thinking about human nature. It just, just a pet interest of mine. I should say before I transition to this, I'm, I'm trying to connect with, I think his name is Warren Farrell, who wrote a book called The Boy Crisis, which is, I think, detailing a lot of um, these uh, you know, not particularly well-known facts about the state of modern boys um, in American culture and Western culture in general. I, I hope to have that conversation in the next year or so. But um, it's another real interest of mine is the big, big five personality traits. And I've heard you speak about this too, that I think the shorthand acronym for that is, is ocean. I heard you say this in the last couple of days in, in preparing for this conversation that it's quite possible that those big five personality traits may be unique to weird people to Westerners essentially. And that I think you were referencing that there were it was research that was being done in Bolivia where they were, I assume doing a battery of tests, personality tests on these individuals. And essentially there were only two primary personality traits that were found one for, I think, sociability and the other for industriousness, something like that. Is, does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh Mike Irvin, Chris von Rudin, uh, and their collaborators, uh, and um, Aaron Lukashevsky is the other name that I should recall there. Um, and, you know, this is quite excellent research and really shows that you there's serious that, you know, the, the what we think of as the big five as human personality structure is actually the product of a lot of culture, history. Um, and their argument is actually that it has to do with the division of labor and people's ability to move between jobs and social niches. So, you know, they're able to show that you get more dimensions and the dimensions are more uncorrelated, even in the modern world today, uh, when you have more different occupations. So more urban areas tend to have more occupations, uh, uh, more economically prosperous societies tend to have more different kinds of occupations. And those, so those things all correlate with having more personality dimensions and more uh, the uh, personality dimensions that are more independent of each other statistically. So yeah, and if you go back to Europe in 1200, you know, the urbanization rates are, you know, teeny. So it just if if that's the key is the uh, if those guys are right then we should expect, you know, two dimensions in early medieval Europe or something like that. Yeah. And so, you know, dovetailing on that with the the case of the people that were discovered in Bolivia, is it that there is no discernible difference in for example, the E in ocean extroversion and introversion? What kind of what are we seeing in those people that make us fairly confident that you know they may not have many or any of the you know neurotic differences for example so, in, in people uh what mike and their colleagues did is they just they did a really intensive so 600 different chamani that's the bolivian population hmm. and they spent a lot of time working on the translations of the standard personality inventories and they did it in a bunch of different ways and what they able to show is if they try to help they try to take the standard model and fit it. It doesn't cohere together. It doesn't statistically look good. So there's all these kind of checks you do to see if things are, you know, questions are cohering with each other and whatnot. And the questions, for example, that 
are usually on extroversion, don't cohere in the way that they do in other societies. So you, you know, you don't want to make an extroversion dimension because it's the questions have to correlate with each other to tell the same story and to say that there's a sensible dimension that could be called extroversion or it could be called conscientiousness. So then when they go back to the drawing board and they redo the kinds of analyses that psychologists did when they were coming up with the big five, they come up with what Mike calls the big two. And that's the two you mentioned, industriousness and prosociality. So if you were just working with the Chimane, you would the big five would never be a thing you'd come up with. You'd, you'd have, be talking about the big two. And do you think the big two would probably be applicable to all other you know, hunter-gatherer societies that we would come across in, in research, or it would be unique to an individual custom, an uh, individual culture? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And nobody has done, to my knowledge, the kind of careful work that Mike and his colleagues did. They make the case that because the way lives are divided up in different in different foraging subsistence-oriented societies like the Chimane, they think you would expect this, um, but more research would be needed to to confirm that. Yeah. I'm wondering for you how so much of your research has affected your view on human nature. You know, like you hear a story like the one you just mentioned about how drastically different personality wise, and I'm sure they would be recognizable as human beings, but do do you think of this like it's almost like a different species in some of these cultures or that humans are just so adaptable that we would be able to enter a culture like that and make you know friends with them or cooperate with them i'm just wondering in general how philosophically how you think about all of yeah, the so i mean in our conversation we have been emphasizing uh these interesting patterns of variation but having spent time in societies like the chamane and uh also i teach a course called human nature there's just lots and lots of areas where uh you know they people feel very human right i mean mm -hmm. they care about status the mating psychology is the same um you know i've sat around with machiganga men in the remote part of the village and one guy was polygynous and he was complaining about the pressures that his additional wives were putting on them and what a pain they were <laughs> um you know all kinds of things like that uh will feel there's you know there's lots of human nature which runs through all these different societies but and then at the same time, when you're when you're, when I'm having that experience, I do remind myself that uh, I'm also papering over and filling in. I'm assuming, well, you know, this guy is just like me along these dimensions, and then I tend to assume he's like those on the other dimensions. But then I do the ultimatum game, and I'm like, actually, he has totally different intuitions on what to do in this in this experiment than I do. Yeah. Uh, so so I mean, you can you know. There's lots of great books. Nicholas Kostakis has one uh, on, on he's called Blueprint, which kind of goes through the features of humans that are human universal and that we all share and shared experience. And there's just tons of those. But there's also lots of interesting cultural variation. One fun example is language, right? So every society has at least one language, but the languages are mutually uninterpretable. But we know it's a language and it's going to do a bunch of the same things. And you could learn it if you, if you buckle down. Uh, so it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I know, you know one of the first people I interviewed for this uh, podcast was David Buss. And I actually went over to his house in Austin and and met him and talked to him for two hours about evolutionary psychology. And you know, a big theme, as I understand it, in his work is related to two human universals in you know what men and women seem to be attracted to uh, related to personality or status or physical features. Uh, do you think that still holds? I mean, in, in what you have 
um, you've seen in some of the research. Do you do you think that while there are perhaps greater differences than we may have imagined culturally with so many different you know cultures in the world, there still is a such a thing as human nature, like in the research that David is has found yeah. in states about yeah. Yeah, no, I'm totally happy with that. Um, I mean, it all comes down to the details, right? So, uh, so David's famous for this his important work he's done on human mating, and I think some of that holds up really well. Um, and you know, just like we were talking about, it's it's reliable that men are inclined towards polygyny. Uh, women like men of higher status than them, or at least the same status, whereas men are much less worried whether the woman is higher status than they are. Uh, you know, and and that seems to be human universal, highly egalitarian societies. It's that way, and it's that way in highly stratified societies as well. Um, other things in that literature don't stand up as well, and you know, people jump to the conclusion early on that that they were observing features of human nature, and it turns out it really depends on the local details or the ecology or something like that. Um, yeah. What what comes to mind with that? You know, some of the details there. Yeah. So. One area is this waist to hip ratio. So um, some of David's colleagues had argued that there's a, a natural 0.7 ratio for a, a woman's waist to hip. Uh, and you know, you can look at historical time trends in the US and you can look at Renaissance paintings and you can kind of get the 0.7 back out of it. But then if you do this in in populations that are under food stress or in other places like that, the 0.7 seems to go away. And there's enough studies now, more than two or three, uh, that, that really bring that into question. Yeah. I want to get back to our own culture and you, you, we've talked a little bit about the, the effect that modern dating technologies may be having on, um, you know, Western society in in kind of having this runaway effect where a very, you know, and, and in many ways in hearing you and to some degree, having some familiarity with the research, this is the natural state of things that, as you said earlier, a lot of women would be happier being the second wife of a billionaire or a multimillionaire or a very high status man than, you know, dating someone that they're not attracted to that can't match them on a uh, competence hierarchy, uh, status hierarchy, hierarchy. Do you fear, like from your perspective, just in your knowledge of human cultures, like, do, do you think this is something that we would be wise to get a handle on um and make it a point of emphasis to you know for lack of a better way of phrasing this you re-emphasize the nuclear family and monogamy and the traditional manner in which you know children are brought into the world and people mate and date or is are are you you open-minded about that how do you think about that in general so i'm i'm pretty open-minded about that uh i i think we have to solve this the problem I talked about, about creating the large pool of unmarried men who have little chance in the mating or marriage market because they're too low status. But if we solve that, there could be lots of different interesting ways for people to organize themselves uh, that don't look like the traditional nuclear family. Um, so I'd, I'd want to see that play out. And the thing about I've learned is that, you know, there's there's many different ways that societies can solve the same problem. So there could be lots of ways to solve this problem that don't look like the old way. How might that look, you know, while still being, for lack of a better word, healthy, right? Like what, what might that look like? What, what could that look like if, you know, our culture is heading in that direction and there's a, sort of an inevitability to that? What, what might be some, some ways in which that may look in our society that, that might not be so bad? 
Well, I mean, what if people, I mean, this one of the, one of my other watchwords or one, one of my other favorite phrases from the secret of our success is that cultural evolution is smarter than we are. So it figures <laughs> out lots of stuff that I probably can't figure out sitting here. Yeah. Um, but I always, I'm kind of partial to these voluntary association communities. So in principle, people could join communities that would fulfill a lot of their social needs. So they'd have a community, they'd be interdependent, they take care of each other's kids. Um, you know, you might think commune, but something that's more integrated into society. These wouldn't be people who were sort of rejecting the larger society. It would be people saying, hey, let's, you know, I like the philosophy of this group. I want to join and be a member. Um, and, you know, they could have relationships within that community, but they wouldn't necessarily have, you know, be legally bound or things like that. Um, maybe something like that could work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I know, I know that for me, so much of your work is um, just incredibly important for understanding ourselves and our own country. And one of the recurring thoughts that I've had over the last few days is, and I know I've heard you say this in prior interviews, that one of the hallmarks of Americans is our overconfidence. Um, and it, even in my lifetime, you know, yesterday was 9-11 that we have... I think all experience in the last two or three decades, a, a real overreach and overconfidence in a, a, Americans' view of our capacity to change other cultures, hmm. to go into foreign countries and to just hold up the beacon of freedom and liberty. And that that is a natural state of human beings to just take that torch and run with it. And if given the prior, the proper opportunity that they will you know, um, go along with that and encourage it and that a functioning, flourishing democracy is, for example, possible in all countries on earth. Um, I don't know if you have thought, you know, deeply about this related to our foreign policy, but to me in, in learning about so much of what you talk about and, and have researched, it, it seems like we should be much more humble in, um, our assessments of how drastic, of how just how different other cultures are, and that you know, we our own hubris has really come back to bite us multiple times in recent history, and that right. it might behoove us to be more wise moving forward. Yeah, and I think that the the core of that problem is basically the the assumption that we're too psychologically too similar. So you know, uh, I mean, I've, at one point I was calling it you know the assume that they're like people in Ohio. <laughs> which is to say they you know they want to be individualistic they they are inclined towards democracy they're willing to move and i mean going to afghanistan it's it might be the place least likely for democracy to work i mean the the cousin marriage rate is over 50% uh these are polygynous clans that <laughs> have have you know histories of kind of distrust with other clans and um long histories of conflict uh arranged marriages so you know there's all this concern about female education if female edu if if educated women are going to be forced into marriages at young ages, arranged marriages, then all that education is not going to matter, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you if you were, if you you know I'm not suggesting I'm not recommending this, but if you really wanted to change things there, you'd basically have to start monkeying around with the basic framework framework of life, right? You mm -hmm. can't have people living in patrilineal clans because you're just going to get the culture of honor, and you're just going to get arranged marriages. 
Yeah, and culture is not something that you can just change overnight, right? This is the mistake oh, yeah. of the, I mean, the Bolsheviks. You're talking and, about a multi-century enterprise, right? So you, you can't go in for 16 years or, or whatever the right number is. You, you would have to say, okay, we're setting up shop for 200 years, you know, something like that. And then you have if, to ban polygyny, ban cousin marriage, you know, do all those things. That's if you if, wanted to remake them in America's image, essentially. If you were an advisor to a president, right? I mean, if, if there were another 9-11 and we were contemplating another adventure into the Middle East or somewhere else, what what kind of advice, what kind of knowledge would you like to convey to, to the leaders of the country um, about a foray into another, a, a deeply different culture than ours? Well, I think you would have to go into that realizing that you you couldn't buy force of arms or even, you know, nation building in a few decades, transform a place like that into uh, you know, a place that will be like the U.S. in terms of its politics and whatnot. Um, so whatever you did, you'd have to uh, just remove the threat. Uh, and otherwise, I think, let let folks govern themselves the way they see fit to govern themselves while at the same time removing the threat to the U.S. So a sort of more minimal, minimalist intervention that took out Osama bin Laden and removed al-Qaeda without completely dismantling the country and flooding it with billions of dollars. I mean, the U.S. probably, the money led people, led young men to want to join the Taliban because they needed bride price. So mm -hmm. in uh, Afghanistan, you have to pay bride price. Lots of people were getting money from the U.S. with when the U.S. basically flooded the place with money. And then they were, bride price was going way up. So if you're a poor herder, sheep herder, you've got to find a way to get a wife. You've got to get in the marriage and mating market. How are you going to get money? Well, if you join the Taliban, then you have a better chance of getting money. And so, you know, just not understanding that dynamic is is was part of the problem. Yeah. You know, my understanding is one of the primary worries about China. We've talked about the concerns about what might be happening in the mating and dating market in the US and how that might change the dating and mating market in the US. What do we know about what's going on in China? I know just from the one child policy that has had been implemented for many, many years that there are significantly more men in that country than there are women. What kind of risks do you see there going on in China in the next generation or two? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's very interesting. And I haven't had good luck in getting information about the contemporary situation. There is very interesting research showing that the Chinese provinces that implemented the one-child policy uh, earlier you tend to get a crime bump as soon as all that that those those extra men come turn 18 essentially you know as soon as they get old enough to start committing crimes so they definitely increase their child uh their their crime rates with the one child policy and it's also going to have so it's also leading to um some amount of minor marriages like where you cuz families with a boy want to lock down a bride as soon as possible so they can make deals, backroom deals, essentially, with other families who have infant girls and say, look, our kids are going to get married someday, right? And there could be cash transfers or whatever. Uh, so there's probably some of that going on. Hmm. But then the other thing that is interesting in China is, to some degree, clans are beginning to reassert themselves. So the, the Chinese Communist Party in the 1950s tried to exterminate clans, and they tried to get rid of all this intensive kinship stuff. Uh, but the clans were never completely destroyed, and the government seems less worried about that now. So you're getting a bit of resurgence of clans. So I don't know if intensive kinship is going to begin to reassert itself, at least in rural areas. So, yeah, yeah. 
we talked about i think you used this phrase earlier the the incel culture and the the men you know in the lower 50% or 25% of the of you know the US culture specifically that are having a very hard time right now given the new technology that's been introduced um you know for them you talked about some of the risks that could happen um with them and i, I think you know to me whenever i see a new you know sh- shooter scenario where there's a a lone wolf that kills a bunch of people they tend to fit a certain profile and obviously we want to try to mitigate the risk of the chaos that men in those situations can inflict upon a, a society and a civilization you know if you were giving a lecture at a high school and inevitably there's going to be a portion of those men who are really struggling and are in that situation and are potentially like seething with resentment and anger and are confused what you know given that we probably do need to make some changes to the education system to allow boys to more be more likely of you know gaining some success in the educational world how do you think about what men in that in that situation what they can do what they should do to try to begin to develop themselves you know like by definition half of people are going to be below average that's just the way numbers work and <laughs> reality <silly> works <laughs> but but in general how do you think about you know what we how we might be able to deal with men who are having a hard time i think you mentioned sex robots earlier well, which is comical but it's also something <laughs> that i think is probably worthy of a, you know a conversation yeah yeah well there's that i mean the other thing to do so y- you said an interesting thing which is you know half of people have to be below average but if we think about in a multi-dimensional spectrum so I mean, one of the ideas is that we've sort of told everybody that they have to go, you know, that the road to success is this, you know, higher education, um, more schooling. But I mean, like, so for example, uh, in my children's high school, there's no shop. There's Mm. no like carpenter, plumber, electrician. um, And we still need all of those occupations. So I think to the degree to which we can raise the status of those occupations and provide clear avenues for talented young men, talented in those areas, they may be, you know, maybe they're not, their essays aren't so great, but they're, they're, you know, good with their hands, then, you know, that's something that they're, you know, they excel in, even if they're below average in the essay writing. Um, you know, we, we haven't cultivated all those other skills the way we once did. Yeah. And perhaps given the esteem to jobs like that, right? Which are absolutely necessary for a functioning society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think we could also raise the standard, right? I mean, you know, the, 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 some of the standards of craftspeople have declined, even though the technology is improving. So I think everybody could be happier. There would be more excellent people going into those professions and then these overall standards would go up. Yeah. This is a very famous, uh, you know, study that I know you have spoken about a few times, but I, I have to get it on record. Um, the story of the United Nations parking tickets and what that seems to indicate about the various countries. You know, I live in New York City now. The the UN General Assembly, I think, is meeting either this week or next week um, here. What's the story? What do we know about the the data that was collected? Right. So this is a, a research done by uh, Ray Fishman and Ted Miguel, and they got together all, all the parking tickets that were issued by the NYPD um, to cars with diplomatic plates. So 90% of UN diplomats and diplomatic delegations live within one mile of the UN uh, compound in New York. So they're all facing the same kind of parking. 
But if you analyze these parking tickets, what you find is that there's tremendous variation among the different countries represented in how many parking tickets they have. So representatives from some countries, which which they do the analysis with just the ambassador himself, and then you know the ambassador plus all of his entourage, and um, you get basically the same answer when you do that. Some delegations from some countries are just parking illegally massively. They get lots of tickets in front of you know fire hydrants, and they're double parking, and they're parking in handicap spots, and all kinds of things. And you know I've spent enough time to know New York City is a tough place to park in, so this this kind of makes sense. Uh, but then places from people from other places don't seem to get any parking tickets at all. So when they analyzed that, they found out that, you know, the people for, and, and so you also have diplomatic immunity. So until uh, 2002, after 9-11, diplomatic immunity is ended. But so the NYPD would issue the ticket, but the, the, you would not have to pay. And so they just have a record. So it's a freebie. And so it's what do people do when they have a freebie, a chance to exploit the system with a out. And anyway, so there's all this variation, and it pretty much fits the the pattern I've been talking about, which is that diplomats from countries with intensive kinship, where people have a narrow circle of trust, um, they're highly nepotistic, all those kinds of things, they tend to accumulate a lot of parking tickets. Whereas the folks from societies with the small monogamous nuclear families, they tend not to get any any tickets in some cases, Canada, Sweden, places like that. Uh, so, and then there's everything in between. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. The one of the last, and I should I, I should say I, I always pair that with the laboratory experiment. So there's, you know, anytime anything, it's real world. You could always try to figure out reasons why it might be the case. Besides it being the psychology of the people themselves, but then if you do it in a controlled laboratory conditions, which Jonathan Schultz has done, you get the same answer. So it seems to have big important implications in the real world and replicable in the lab under tightly controlled conditions. And what does that tell us about the cultures that are getting, you know, massive number of, of parking tickets? What, what do you? What's the general takeaway from that information? Well, the way to think about that is that uh, what we, th- what many people would think of as corruption, helping friends and cronies and uh, relatives and whatnot, and trying to operate through sets of personal relationships, but not worrying about abstract rules like parking laws, uh, is just how some societies operate. So people from these places are just coming with this sort of operative psychology for getting getting by in the societies that they live in. And, and in the case of New York City, because of this particular thing with diplomatic immunity and parking, you know, it, it, it emerges in there. They found that when they, after 2002, when the law cracked down and they had to pay the tickets, you know, everybody's parking dropped down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so law penalty fines did matter, but, um, you could still see the pattern, interestingly enough. So there was still a tendency to try to, you know, fudge the rules rather than just saying, okay, I can't park here and, and probably paying a lot to park in a lot. Yeah. One of the final, uh, I know we're getting somewhat close to the end of the conversation and I, I wanted to bring up with you and there's a phrase that has continuously gone through my head, which is moral relativism. And I know you are fascinated by human nature and so much of your work is about human nature. And the the story that continuously came to me that I wanted to bring up, you know, when I was uh, young, I read Ayan Hirsi Ali's uh, terrific autobiography called Infidel, which is a story of her journey from, I think it was Somalia or Ethiopia, um, from a, basically a clan society, a, a tribal um, civilization into the West. And she, if I'm remembering her story correctly, 
um, she was on her way to marry her cousin. She had no choice in the matter, but she was being forced to marry a cousin who I believe was living in Canada. And during a layover in Amsterdam or in Europe, she refused to get on the final flight to go and, and marry her cousin and started this career as this you know, liberated Western woman who ended up getting elected to the part to parliament in the Netherlands. And, um, you know, so much of her book came to mind when I was, you know, getting familiar with your more familiar with your work in that she was, you know, leaving a community where individual freedom, individual thinking, uh, rebelliousness were certainly not uh, encouraged or even tolerated. I mean, she knew she was risking her life to flee and become, you know, a, a weird person, a Westerner. And a component of her story, which she talks about in her book, is the, uh, I'm sure you are familiar with this, the the tendency in those cultures to inflict FGM, female genital mutilation, on young girls to um, basically cut their clitoris out when they're young. And this happens in many different countries, as I understand it, in in the Muslim world. And I think for 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 me, for people who grow up in places like the United States and in the West, you you can kind of point to moments like that as saying, you know, this is objectively wrong. There are things that are you know good and bad and and right and wrong in this world, and that would be one example. And this is one thing I love about learning is that it, it it introduces a whole lot more gray into the world than you might otherwise have been familiar with. But, you know, given how much you know about different cultures, and maybe we can just take that example specifically and, you know, philosophically for you, how you think about the ethics of ethics and the, mm. the philosophy of ethics. And, you know, there's a lot I just stated there, but in general, I I'd just love to get your view on, moral relativism in general and maybe that cultural practice specifically to um you know highlight how you think about the role the role of culture and the the role of you know benevolent behavior in a, a just society how, how do you think about it? i know you're a westerner too so it's hard to get out of our own water but um, yeah yeah i mean i really think that the, you know the value of spending a lot of time thinking about other societies and trying to understand their psychology is it, you know, it'll at least gives you something to work with when you approach issues like this. I mean, I like that you used FGM because this is the this is my test for whether you're a true cultural relativist. Because mm. I find if you'll be like, oh yeah, that's fine. You know, it's <laughs> those people want to cut off the clitorises of their young daughters, then then that's okay with me. Um, most people will will not follow you there. Uh, maybe some will though. Um but I think the other thing is, is if you, if you know, when you dig into that ethnography, you often find that the people within the system have beliefs which make it seem perfectly sensible. So, for example, they have beliefs that it's impure, and they kind of find it disgusting for a woman to have a clitoris. And just as a practical matter, if you have, if you haven't had the procedure, uh, people at least believe that there are lots of families that will not marry you. Yeah. And then, without a husband, in the way that society is organized. You have no path to the future. So you would you there's an argument to be made you're being a bad parent if you don't uh have the procedure done to have the circumcision done to your daughter because she won't be marriageable and then she can't have children and then the, or the children won't be legitimate and you know all kinds of bad downstream consequences. So in that sense, the norms are interlocking. Now, if you analyze that, so uh the practice itself is probably bad 
for the individual. It's definitely bad for the individual just on a health, just on health grounds, right? So there's chances for infection and a loss of sexual pleasure. You know, it's hard to make the case that there's anything positive for the individual. It probably also suppresses the fertility of the society. So at least at the level of fertility, it's bad for the society. Now, you know, someone could say, well, we believe it's right on religious grounds. Well, that's that's a fine argument. Um, but I guess when I'm thinking about kind of meta ethics and stuff, and I've never really had a problem. It seems to me that I guess I'm I, I like to use the the uh, Declaration of, of of Human Rights because it seems to me there's a bunch of human rights which many of us can agree on, and I guess I've, I I don't have a problem saying that you know people do it a different way. We can understand the logic of their system, but I still think you know all people should be equal or we shouldn't oppress women or something. You know that stuff just seems very straightforward to me. And I think the FGM case is a nice case where I don't have any problem with organizations that are trying to change societies in ways that that reduce FGM. That seems like a, a good thing to me that's worth doing. Yeah. I don't have to tell you this, but yeah, I've done enough converse I've had enough conversations with especially scientists who are in universities right now that, you know, are often colliding with the postmodernist fashionable philosophy of modern times, which I think would not make the statement you just made, right? Like the postmod as I understand postmodernism, it's essentially that there is no right and wrong. There is no objective truth. There it's nothing but gray in general. And I, they have a point in that you do need to be informed about you know why a cultural practice may have taken place, but it, it's always struck me as a bit odd to take that perspective because if you do take that perspective, you are then potentially defending societies like Saudi Arabia and other nations that are absolutely suppressing the rights and freedoms of women and are doing horrific things you know, w not having a society that is buttressing the the liberty of of the women in that society. I don't, I don't know if you have any you know opinions on that in general, but um, well, I just find that well, actually, I have trouble finding people who will really defend that when you start pushing them. Yeah, um, it's almost like an intellectual game or an intellectual toy or something like that, <clears throat> because you know FGM is a great example, but you could always just go to slavery, right? Yeah. Lots of societies have had slavery, and and if those people want to have slavery, why can't they have slavery? You know that kind of thing, or child labor, or you know all these other things that we just you know to the modern mind, at least to my mind, um, it's awful, uh, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, no, I. I uh, it would be fun to hear someone who really, I mean, uh, Rick Schwader sometimes will do it, uh, will give you a spirited defense of relativism to the point where they would defend letting a society have FGM or defend letting a society have slavery or defend a society that has child labor or, you know, there's a lot of other practices that involve, uh, um, you know, there's there's human sacrifice. I mean, there, you know, yeah. <laughs> Barbarism the well's in pretty deep. The well's pretty deep of things that would uh, that don't fit in with uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah, and I, I maybe this year too. I mean, with the invasion of of Ukraine for no sensible reason and the suffering of millions of people for for nothing. Right. right. I mean, th right. this has been a reintroduction of why you know the the rights that have been enshrined into law are so so valuable. Um. I can't tell you how much I have appreciated this. I could talk to you for days. This this <laughs> stuff is so fascinating to me. 
what's next for you? What are you what are you working on? What's what's interesting to you? What's curious in in your in your mind? Yeah, the big th- I'm working kind of in two areas. So the first is um very beginnings of a book and the book is focused on innovation and the evolution of thinking. Uh and I I just want to kind of take some space to make the point that so much of innovation is driven by sociality. So most ideas are recombinations of existing ideas. And once you that seems like a very simple idea, most people wouldn't agree with would di- wouldn't at least immediately disagree with it. But then it has big implications for all kinds of things. Like for example, I was just writing a chapter on how prohibition reduced innovation in the United States. Mm. Uh because you can't meet up in the bar and have a chat and then swap ideas and and then people produce fewer innovations as a consequence. Yeah. Yeah. It's like hipster culture around here in Brooklyn. I mean, the the bringing back things from yesteryear that used to be fashionable and haven't been for a hundred years, and now everybody is doing it again. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. a form of cultural, uh, yeah, cultural innovation. Um, thank you so much for doing this. This was a real joy, and I I have learned so much from you know your work and just this conversation. I hope other people will. I really appreciate it. just you're clearly such a well-read and curious person, and. Um, I, I know I've just benefited enormously from from your work and your willingness to share that with the public. So thank you so much for doing this. It was a real Thanks, honor. Dan. Good to be with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.